and I have a piece of paper that tells me who that is. If they know, please come forward. I just, just something that I did not check. Here we go. Rivera right, Grace. Sorry, Grace. Yeah. <laughs> She's there, right there, ready. Yeah. <laughs> we get there sooner or later. <laughs> centuries before today's reading, many centuries before, this was written in the book of Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. 700 years later, John the Baptist was in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was part of his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and unite. Now today's reading. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Let's pray as we come to God's word, shall we? Please join me. Uh, gracious Father, we do. We thank you for the opportunity we have now uh, to hear from you, uh, the, the maker of this incredible universe and the redeemer of us in Jesus. And we pray today as we reflect on your word, as we hear what you have to say to us, we pray that your spirit would work in us such that we would not just understand what's being said, we would respond in repentance and faith and in joyful obedience. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, enjoying God. Uh, you can see there, that's the title uh, of our series for the next couple of weeks. Three weeks it's going to be, although in week four, in week three, there's going to be two different talks, so you might want to come in the morning and the evening. Um, it's a four-week series that I've crammed into three, so but this is what we're going to be thinking of over the next uh, few weeks together. And I suspect for some of us, you see that, and maybe you see the graphic there, and you think, oh, that sounds good. I can see the smiles on your faces already. Uh, others of us, uh, perhaps the more emotionally challenged, let's say, uh, maybe feel a little bit sceptical. It's all a bit touchy-feely, enjoying God, a bit overly emotive, uh, very un-Presbyterian perhaps. I come from a Presbyterian church, I can say that. Um, but as we begin today, and we begin this series today, I want to put it to you that this topic, enjoying God, is actually fundamental to the Christian life. Um, God's vision for you and I, God's vision for us, his desire for our lives, is not just that we would know about him, not just that we would trust him and serve him, but that we would enjoy him. 
that we would delight in him. Um, in fact, if you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which as Presbyterians you should, um, it actually makes this point, doesn't it? It asks a question. I'll get that up on the screen. What, what is the chief end of man? What's the chief end of humankind is what the question's asking. And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's very interesting that it's there, enjoy him forever. Uh, the American preacher, John Piper, he takes it a step further, though. Uh, if you've read his book, Desiring God, he changes a one little word in the catechism, and he argues the chief end of humankind is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That is what he's saying. It's not just that we are to glorify God and enjoy him, that the way we glorify God is by enjoying him. Um, but whether, whether John Piper's right or not, the point is enjoying God is important. It's, it's fundamental. Um, and if you know, if you've read, read the scriptures, you'll, you'll actually know that, won't you? Because the Bible, over and over again, encourages us, in fact, exhorts us to rejoice in God, to take joy in him. Uh, Philippians 4, we know this verse, don't we? Rejoice in the Lord always. And in case we didn't catch it the first time, Paul says it again. I will say it again. Rejoice. Well, there's the psalm, psalmist in Psalm 37 who commands us or exhorts us, take delight in the Lord. Or maybe you think of the Apostle Peter writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, speaking of Jesus. He says, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Friends, God does not simply want us to know him. He wants us to enjoy him. His longing, his, his hope, his goal for us is that we would delight in him. In fact, that's what he's made us for. And uh, the goal of the next few weeks as we think about this topic, enjoying God, is to help us do this. To... Uh, What's going on there? Let's move off that, get off that slide. We'll come back to that. Leave it on that one. Yeah. Um, it's to help us do this, to do this, to help us step back and enjoy God, to enjoy who he is, enjoy what he's done for us, and to enjoy his work in our lives. And today, to help us get started in thinking about this, we're actually going to take our lead from God himself. Uh, because interestingly, God is a God who finds enjoyment within himself. Uh, God, as Father, Son, and Spirit, share a joy within the Godhead. And so today we're going to consider that joy a little bit, how they rejoice in one another, and then what it might look like for us to share in the joy that they have. Uh, do please have your Bibles there, uh, and let's, uh, let's, let's begin. We'll start in Mark chapter 1 and start with the question of God the Father. What is, or more to the point, who is our Heavenly Father's joy? What does he delight in? What does he uh, rejoice and take pleasure in? Well, over and over, the, and again, the Bible will tell us that the Father's joy is his Son. The Father's delight is his beloved, eternal Son. Have another look at those verses we just read from Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Look what it says. Verse 11, You are my son, who I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Uh, now this, is a, this is a familiar moment for many of us. It's a wonderful moment, isn't it? Uh, we're at the start of Jesus' public ministry. Um, and like the rest of the nation, Jesus is heading to the Jordan to hear John the Baptist preach and be baptized by him. Um, but as Jesus comes into the water to be baptized by John, this extraordinary thing happens. And there's a, there's a, there's a few things going on here, isn't there, if you, if you look. In the first place, all three persons of the Trinity, all of the Godhead, has shown up for this moment, haven't they? So you've got Jesus, the Son, he's there. He's the one getting baptised in the water. But you've also got the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then there's God the Father. We don't see God the Father, we hear his voice as he speaks these words about his Son from heaven. All of God, God in his fullness is there in this moment. I mean, this is actually, just as a bit of a side note, quite significant, isn't it? I mean, it corrects a mistake that, some, that people sometimes make about God, about God as Trinity, uh, a heresy known uh, from the early church known as uh, modalism. Uh, you might have come across this. It's the idea uh, that the way the Trinity works is that there's one God and he just operates in different modes. Uh, he puts on a different mask depending on what he might be doing that day. You know? So if he's uh, create, doing fatherly things like creating the world, he puts on the father's mask. Or if he's uh, doing spirity things like uh, miracles, something like that, he puts on the spirit mask. Or if he's uh, doing sonly things like dying for the salvation of the world, he puts on the, the sonly mask. Uh, the argument is that he's one God, but he's in three different modes. And you can understand the attractiveness of that, can't you? Because it makes sense of the, the problem of the Trinity, one God, three persons. But as, the, as it was declared in the, in, the, in the early centuries of the church, it's, it's actually a heresy. It's wrong. It's not, that's not what God is like at all. Um, God is one God but three distinct persons. And, and this moment highlights this for us, doesn't it? We see there, all in this one moment, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God, three distinct persons, all at work. It's quite extraordinary. Um, the other thing, though, that makes this so extraordinary, and the thing I want to focus on as we think about this topic, enjoying God, is what the Father says about the Son. Have another look at verse 11. He, he, he says two things. Firstly, he declares his love for his Son. You are my son whom I love. Um, sometimes you, this will read, you are my beloved son. Uh, the word translates the, the Greek word, which you may have heard of, agape, agape. Um, it's a word used throughout the New Testament for God's love, sacrificial, other person-centered love. That's how God feels about his son. That's the affection, that's the love that he has for his son. And it's not just the love that he has in this moment, of course. This is the love that the Father has felt through all eternity for his Son. Uh, in John's Gospel, uh, John chapter 17, Jesus prays to his Father. Listen to what he asks in John 17 verse 24. He says, 
Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me. But then listen to what he says. Because you loved me before the creation of the world. What God God the Father is declaring about his son here is this eternal love he has had for his son before the foundation of the world. That is the Father's attitude towards the Son. That is how he feels about his Son. Uh, But he says a bit more than that, doesn't he? The second thing the Father declares about his Son is his pleasure in him. Did you notice that at the end of verse 11? He says of Jesus, You are my Son who I love. With you I am well pleased. It's, It's a declaration of approval. It's a declaration of delight. This is the one whom I'm well pleased with. Uh, it's such a fatherly thing to say when you think about it, isn't it? Um, it's, all, it's, always, it's always precarious moving from God to us. But uh, you think about how fathers generally feel about their kids. Um, they have this, this delight, this approval, don't they? I was thinking about my own experiences as a father. I remember, that's where the, we'll get that photo up there now. I remember when my eldest son, Elliot, was born. It's a while ago now. Uh, neither of us look quite like that anymore. Um, but just you can see there, can't you? Me staring at him. The approval, the delight, the pleasure. This is my son. Uh, it's not just me, it's, it's other fathers too. Um, some of you may have seen the, the musical Hamilton. Uh, my wife and I, we got to go down to Sydney uh, last year. We, we, we got to see, see this musical and there's this song in Hamilton uh, where the two rivals in the movie, Aaron Burr, uh, and, and Hamilton himself, Alexander Hamilton, they sing this duet to their newborn children. It's called Dear Theodosia. Oh, there they are. They're, they're singing it in the musical. Listen to the words that they sing. Hamilton sings, O Philip, that's the name of his son, when you smile, I am undone. My son, look at my son. Pride is not the word I'm looking for. There is so much more inside me now. O Philip, you outshine the morning sun, my son. They're beautiful words, aren't they? In a far richer, far deeper, far more profound way, this is God the Father's pleasure in his son. You are my son who I love. With you, I am well pleased. It's him who he loves. It's him who he's pleased with. It's him, can I say, who he delights in. And as we think about this topic, enjoying God, this is really helpful. Uh, Because what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that fundamental to enjoying God is actually sharing in the Father's joy that he has in his son. Part of what it is to enjoy God is to share in the delight of the Heavenly Father for his son Jesus. Uh, in, in fact, that is what God has made us for. Uh, we'll look at this a lot more next week. But his purpose in creating the world, we're told in, in the book of Colossians in chapter 1, he made this world for his son. All things were made by him, through him and for him. 
He made it so his son would be glorified, so his son would be delighted in. And in fact, it's not just the creation is for that. That's the point of redemption too, isn't it? That's why the father sent his son to earth to redeem us, because he wanted to redeem a people who with him would rejoice in his son. See, fundamental to enjoying God is sharing in the father's joy in his son. Now, how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, you have to come back next week. (laughs) A little little teaser for next week. Uh, Let's move on to the joy of God the Son. Uh, Does it work the other way? The Father delights in the Son. Does the Son delight in his Father? Well, the short answer is yes, he does. Very much so. Um, But there's an important difference, actually. Just like the Father delights in his Son, like, in a fatherly way, the son delights in the father in a, I don't even know if this is a word, a sonly way, in a way that befits a son. Um, grab your Bibles. I want you, I want you to take you back to uh, the prophet Isaiah, um, the, a book in the Old Testament looking forward to, to Jesus' coming. We've already read a few passages from Isaiah this morning. Uh, I want to look here at Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, this chapter, it's, it's looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And I want you to notice in these verses what the delight of the promised Messiah is going to be. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, I'm going to read from verse 1. Uh, We read there that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Uh, Jesse was King David's father. Uh, It's saying, we're talking about King David's lineage. There's going to come one from King David's lineage, uh, the, the, the stump of Jesse. From his roots, verse 1, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Sounds familiar from Mark 1, doesn't it? The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And look at verse 3. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Have a look at that last line. Just notice what it's saying. It's such an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Isaiah is looking forward to the Messiah's coming, to Jesus' coming, to the moment we see in Mark chapter 1, this ruler who will come from the stump of Jesse, from the line of King David, this ruler who is going to have wisdom and understanding and knowledge and might. And what, but what will his delight be in, we're told? Where will his joy be found? Well, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. His joy will be in the fear of the Lord. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, as many of us are aware, in the Bible, fearing the Lord is not primarily about being scared of God. Although there are elements of that in the Bible. We have a right fear of God. He is a, he's a righteous, holy judge. In fact, Hebrews will talk about God being a blazing fire. And we should rightly fear his judgment. But I think when this phrase is used here, it's not so much talking about that. Rather, to fear God here, to fear the Lord, is rightly submitting ourselves to him, recognizing who he is, the glory he deserves, and honoring him accordingly, submitting to his will, following his ways, obeying his commands. As one scholar puts it, fearing God is a worshipping submission of him. Fearing God is a worshipping submission of him. It's about pleasing him, following him, obeying him. And and, and it's this that Isaiah, the prophet, tells us will mark out Jesus. 
This, this coming one will, be, will, will delight in the fear of the Lord. That will be the thing that he rejoices in, takes joy in. And which, when you think about Jesus' life, is exactly what you see, isn't it? It's exactly what you see. And just think about some of the moments in Jesus' life as he goes along. You know, early on, as a boy, he and his folks, they go to the temple, don't they? And, and mum and dad leave him behind. Great parenting there, wasn't it? No, we've all done that. Any parents have done that. Uh, but, but, but they, they, they leave him behind and they're halfway home and they realise he's not there. So they go back to find him and they find him at the temple. And, and, and listen to what he says to them where they find him. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? You can, you can say it doesn't use the word of joy or delight there, but you can see that delight in the fear of the Lord, can't you? Um, there's, there's when he debates with the Jewish leaders in John's Gospel. They're debating who he is. And, and he explains to them his compulsion to obey his heavenly Father. He says in John chapter 5, verse 30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's John chapter 5, verse 30. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, his goal in life, his, his, what he desires is to obey the will of his Father. That's what he rejoices and delights in. Perhaps the clearest example of it, though, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night he's betrayed and, and arrested and handed over to the authorities. His father's will is that he would go to the cross and bear the judgment for the sins of the world. That's his father's will. And though Jesus knows this and desires it too, he struggles with it there, doesn't he? He struggles with it. Part of him doesn't want to do that. It describes him sweating drops of blood. And, and, and you'll know his desperate cry to his father. He says, take this cup from me. It's his way of saying, may there be another way. Please don't make me bear the judgment of the sins of the world. Take this cup away from me. But he doesn't leave it at that. That's where we'd probably leave it. God, take this away from me. No, he says, but Lord, not my will, but yours be done. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. It's such an incredible moment. And then he goes along and willingly submits himself to his Father's will, doesn't he? For Jesus to enjoy God, for him to delight in God is to fear his father, to obey his father, to submit to him. And, and interestingly, to do so even at great cost to himself. It's an interesting description of delight and joy, isn't it? Uh, but again, so helpful as we think about what it might mean for us to enjoy God. Um, because I, I, I take it, just as part of enjoying God is delighting with the Father in his Son, also for us, part of enjoying God is actually like the Son, delighting in obeying our Heavenly Father. Delighting in the fear of the Lord. Um, for if you're a Christian, God is not just Jesus' Father, is he? No, we too have been adopted into the family. We too are sons of the Father. 
And so like Jesus, to enjoy God is to delight in fearing our Heavenly Father, to delight in submitting to his ways. Uh, And this is important to grasp if we're going to understand enjoying God. Because I don't know, what did you think when you saw the topic there, enjoying God? What What did you imagine that might be? Um, I suspect some of us might have been thinking, oh, you know, those, you know, sort of happy, clappy, hallelujah, praise the Lord kind of experience. Maybe that's what you were thinking. Uh, Perhaps you were thinking of some kind of serene, tranquil, mountaintop experience, you know, sitting up on the lookout, looking at the sunset or something like that. That's enjoying God. Now, don't get me wrong. They they may be ways that we express our joy in God. Uh, But Jesus here... The son's joy in his father points us to something far more fundamental. Enjoying God is first and foremost about pleasing him, about submitting ourselves to him, about delighting in his will. And and strangely, as Jesus' example shows us, that might not always feel that enjoyable. (laughs) Going to the cross, but that is actually the son's joy. And so for us to enjoy God will be tough at times, but ultimately that's where true joy is found. That's where true joy is found. See, friends, we enjoy God as we delight with the father in his son, but we also enjoy God as we delight with the son in the fear of the Lord. Now, if you want to hear more about that, You have to come back over the next few weeks. (laughs) There's one more person of the Trinity we need to think about this morning. Uh, The easily forgotten, often neglected member of the Trinity. He's like like the middle child, isn't he? The the Holy Spirit. Um, What's his place in all this? We'll come back to that quote in a a bit. Um, Does he share in the joy that the Father and Son share? Well, again, yes, he does. But again, he does so in a way that fits with who he is. His joy is a, again, I'm making up words this morning, it's a spirity kind of joy. I mean, we actually see it in both of the passages we've looked at already, don't we? Um, The spirit is there in both of them. So turn back to Mark chapter 1 and have another look at the place of the spirit in Jesus' baptism. Uh, Verse 10 Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And in verse 11, as the Spirit comes down, a voice came from heaven and there you hear the statement from the Father, you are my son. See, as the Father speaks these words of delight, the words are accompanied by the descent of the Spirit. It's very, very interesting, isn't it? It's like the father is sending his spirit upon his son as a a pledge of what he's saying, a pledge of his love and the approval that he has for his son. Um, If you come to Isaiah 11, the spirit's role is even even clearer um, um, for the son. So flick back to Isaiah 11 and just notice again (laughs) how prominent the spirit is. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, what's the spirit's role in the son's delight? The spirit empowers it, doesn't it? 
How, is this, how does the son live this life of obedience, this life of, it's described here, wisdom and understanding of knowledge and the fear of the Lord? Well, he does it with the spirit resting on him. I mean, it's really interesting in the very next verse, which we didn't read before there, verse, uh, verse 12 of Mark, um, the spirit takes him out into the wilderness and empowers him as he resists the temptations of Satan. And so the father sends the spirit as a pledge of his love. And the son receives the spirit as an empowerment of his fearing of the Lord. Um, this might be committing heresy, but you might want to think of the spirit a bit like this guy. I'll get, I'll get the image up there. It's the, it's the picture of the Olympian there. there. There he is. Anybody remember who that is? You're all going, No. It's going back a bit now. It was the Tokyo Olympics um, last year. So, I don't know, nine months ago. His name, I'm, I'm interested in the guy who's yelling, Cedric Dubler or Dubler. Um, Ash Maloney's the guy next to him. They were the Australian rep, reps in the decathlon. The decathlon. Um, and uh, Ash Maloney, it was his first Olympics. He actually got a bronze medal, came third. Uh, and this is them in the final event, the final event. The way that the decathlon works, there's 10 different sports that they compete in and you get points for how you go at you know, different things along the way. They got to the final event and in the 800 metres, I think it was, um, Ash Maloney had to run a particular time to maintain third place. Cedric Dubler, he, he was coming 21st. He had no hope. But this was him during the event. <laughs> He ran, he's a better runner than Ash Maloney. He ran alongside him the whole way and he just yelled at him and encouraged him. And when Ash Maloney got over the line at the end and got third place, the joy on Cedric's face was bigger than it was on Ash's. I take it the Spirit of God is a bit like that. His delight is the shared delight of the Father and the Son. His delight is the, fa see, the father's joy in his son and the son's obedience to his father. He pledges the father's love for his son and he empowers the son's obedience to his father. And now again, that helps us as we think about enjoying God. Because as those who trust Jesus, we receive this same spirit. The same spirit who empowers Jesus' delight in pleasing his father and who pledges the father's delight in his son dwells in us. And the spirit's work in our life, I take it the fundamental work of the spirit in our lives is that we might share in that joy that the father and the son share in eternity. Dwelling within us, he opens our eyes to see the glory of Jesus. That's what he does, isn't he? that we would see how wonderful God's son Jesus is and that we would trust him and live for him. But he does more than that. As he dwells in us, he adopts us as God's children and enables us to please our heavenly father. Uh, to quote the British theologian Michael Reeves, the spirit's first work is to set our desires in order, to open our eyes and give us the father's relish for the son, and the son's own enjoyment of the father. How is it that we enjoy God? What, what does it look like? Well, our joy is to share in God's joy as by his spirit. We delight in the father's son and we live to please our heavenly father. 
That's what enjoying God is. It's wonderful, isn't it? Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack that a bit more practically. We'll think next week about what it is to enjoy the sun. Uh, And then the final week, in the morning, we'll think about what is it to enjoy the Father. Uh, And if you come in the evening, we'll think about how does the Spirit help us to do those things. Uh, I think it's going to be great. um, Before we finish, though, I'm going to do something a bit different and uh, a bit radical. And uh, with each of the talks, I'm going to give us a bit of homework. Uh, I don't know if Dave does this. (laughs) He used to be a teacher, didn't he? He probably does. Uh, this This is completely voluntary. It's not arduous. I just want to give us something tangible to try and grasp on and grow in the idea of rejoicing and enjoying God. This week's task, really simple. Here's what you've got to do. I want you to reflect on something about God. It, it might be something we've, we've, we've talked about today. It could be something else. Something that delights you about who God is. And I just want you to share that with someone else. It might be your spouse. might be somebody in your family. might be a friend. doesn't matter who. Just reflect on something that delights you about God and share that with someone else. That's your homework. Um, I won't check it next week. Don't worry. Friends, God's desire is for us to enjoy him as he does. To not simply know him and trust him. To not merely serve him, but to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's what he's like in himself. That's what he's made each of us for. Let me pray and ask that he'd help us to enjoy him like this. Let's pray. Our wonderful Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of joy. You are that in yourself from eternity and you long for us to share in the joy that you have. Uh, Father, help us grow in this over the coming weeks. Help us to see the wonder of your son Jesus and delight in him as you do. Father, help us to follow Jesus in submitting ourselves to your will May our, be, our delight be in the fear of the Lord. And Father, thank you for your spirit who dwells within us and actually makes these things a reality for us. Father, we praise you for these things. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.